Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. This week and next, our Humankind on Public Radio podcast examines the story of Ted Kaczynski, who came to be known as the Unabomber. He was found dead in his prison cell on June 10, 2023, at age 81. In our coverage about this topic, I've always felt the main story was not the criminal spree by Ted, but the courage shown by his brother David Kaczynski, who came to the horrifying realization that his mentally ill brother had committed these crimes. And you'll hear about his dark night of the soul. Stay tuned. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I don't know what happened to him. I mean, I could read the diagnoses. I can have them carefully explained to me. It, it doesn't exhaust the question that we always ask, why, why, why? David Kaczynski, who turned in his brother the Unabomber, reflects on justice, vengeance, and compassion. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. suspicions in 1995 that his loner brother Ted was a serial killer, David Kaczynski had to make his way through a nightmarish thicket of ethical choices. To turn his brother in could mean stopping an 18-year spree of murders and maimings perpetrated by an elusive figure who came to be known as the Unabomber. But it could also mean sending his only brother to a death sentence, a form of punishment David morally abhorred. In the end, David Kaczynski felt he had no choice but to notify law enforcement. United States Attorney General Janet Reno, April 4, 1996. On Wednesday, agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the Postal Inspection Service began executing a search warrant at the residence of Theodore John Kaczynski near Lincoln, Montana. When he was taken into custody by federal agents from his one-room cabin, Ted Kaczynski had the appearance of an unkempt bearded hermit. Photos of the arrest were shocking to David Kaczynski and his wife Linda Patrick, whom Ted had mostly cut off years earlier. It was a far cry from the one-time image of Ted as a promising mathematician at the University of California. 
Over the years, he would quit his teaching job and become a recluse, obsessed with the repercussions of technology on society. His long-winded manifesto was published by newspapers in 1995 in an attempt to catch the Unabomber, David Kaczynski. When he was arrested, they found, in addition to a you know, carbon copy of the manifesto and other incriminating evidence, they found a live bomb in his bed, um, apparently waiting to be mailed to somebody. So there was no question that he was responsible and that he probably would have struck again. You know, I, I just look back and thank God that Linda and I had the insight and the courage to do what we did um, and, and that we were able to stop it. In June 1996, a federal grand jury in Sacramento, California, returned a 10-count indictment charging Theodore Kaczynski with four separate bombings. The lead prosecutor, Robert Cleary, would later publicly honor the role played by Ted Kaczynski's brother. Everyone involved in this case is also eternally indebted to the heroic actions of David Kaczynski. He is a true American hero. David Kaczynski's bold decision to contact federal agents about his mentally ill brother was just the beginning of an improbable odyssey exploring what justice really means. He would have a series of powerful encounters with survivors of the Unabomber's violence. David would become close friends with one of the victims. He would take on the system of capital punishment, a penalty his brother was spared, but which David regards as unjustly applied and barbaric. And through it all, David Kaczynski would be forced to keep reaching inside, to keep searching for compassion. I got a call from uh, someone who identified herself as a law enforcement chaplain, and uh, she said that there was a victim's family that had requested a meeting with Mom and I and wondered if we'd be open to that. And I asked Mom, and she said, well, I think we should go. Um, so that we were taken to a room in the courthouse and uh, faced, uh, as we walked in the room, three women there. One was the, the widow of somebody my brother had killed. Uh, one was her sister, and the third was her husband's sister. And, you know, you walk in and, you know, we kind of said, we're sorry, we're sorry. We began to cry. And always the realization that no matter how much you say you're sorry or how sincerely, it can't undo the harm that was done. Um, the widow spoke for the family and, and said that they'd wanted to take this opportunity to thank us, that it must have been very difficult what we'd done. Um, she also said that she wanted us to know that all they had ever really wanted was for the violence to stop. Um, I think they were telling us that they, they hadn't needed the death penalty for their sense of uh, justice or closure. Um, and that was very, very meaningful to us. There were some hugs. There were. Um, on the other hand, here is mom. She's facing three women whose lives have been just shattered by her son. And I think she had a deep, deep need to communicate to them that her son 
was not a monster, but a very, very sick person. And she began talking to them about schizophrenia and trying to make them understand. Um, but, you know, un, you know, it's not with our, our brains that we understand such things. Um, and I don't think they were ready yet for what Mom was trying to tell them. Um, I was, she was seated, seated in a chair, and I was actually standing behind her with my hands on the back of the chair. And as I looked over her head, I saw that the, you know, the faces of the women were, didn't look pleased. Like um, maybe they thought Mom was making excuses for Ted. And in fact, the widow said suddenly he knew what he was doing. Um, and it was a very intense moment. I mean, the, the room was suddenly kind of frozen in silence in what had been, you know, a, a humanitarian meeting on the very, with the very best of intentions, I think, um, looked like it was blocked. You know, there, we'd, we'd come, uh, but there was this gulf of pain and loss separating us. We could sort of see on the other side, but there was no bridge to the other side. Um, and Mom, at that moment, uh, kind of instinctively dropped her head, and she said, I think with utmost honesty, she said, uh, I wish he had killed me instead of your husband. Um, and I, I think, you know, her all she had wanted to do really was to be a, a mother, to nurture her children so that they would be happy, maybe so they'd leave the, the world a better place for having been there and here, at least with her eldest son, it had turned into a disaster. Uh, I don't think she had anything to live for in her own mind at that moment. Um, but as I'm looking over her head, I'm, I'm looking at the widow and seeing that she's just stricken by what my mom had said. And in fact, she got out of her chair and knelt down beside my mom's chair, put her hand on my mom's shoulder, touched her lightly, and said, oh, Mrs. Kaczynski, don't, don't do this to yourself. Don't, you're not responsible. Don't ever think that you're responsible. That must have been amazing for your mother to hear. Oh, yes. Uh, unbelievably so. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think that experience was so powerful for me. I remember leaving the room that day, probably a very different person, um, thinking about the dignity that was present there, the, the honesty, um, the, 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 the good intention out of empathy to acknowledge another person's loss. And I really felt, um, what a fine thing the human heart is, the human soul is, that there is a core of decency um, that really redeems us. I mean, it's really the only thing we have to cling to when the worst happens. And it was so much in evidence in that room that evening. Um, it made me proud to be human. In a world that at times seems overloaded with hatred and revenge, the human capacity for compassion is a mystery. It makes you wonder why, in some instances, our empathy shuts down, while at other times we are able to stay open. Gary Wright from Salt Lake City has confronted these questions since 1987, when he was severely injured by one of the Unabomber's explosives. 
It would be more than nine years before federal agents would accuse Ted Kaczynski of the crime. After I knew who it was, I, I saw there was a family over there. I mean, the only instances that I had ever seen of Dave or, or his mom or anyone was uh, just some brief television clips and, and the way that Dave approached it and, and handled things, the way the whole family did, was so admirable. I mean, I, I, there, there was always this real, uh, almost a reverence towards a victim. And, you know, they acknowledged that every single time that I ever saw anything on the news. And I thought, you know, that, that's, a, that's a family going through a lot. And, and you know, there's still uh, a, a lot placed on the, the thoughts of the folks who have been hurt and, and have lost someone, even before their own. And that's when I started to make this connection that there's, there's really not a lot of difference between those families. I mean, in some regards, I think it's worse on the other side because the physical pieces, they go away. I mean, you learn to do things a little different or whatever. But w when you have to talk about, you know, my, my brother murdered someone or uh, think in the terms of that, that's very difficult. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't want that burden either. But I watched the way that... that the Kaczynski family handled that, and that and that Linda handled that with them, and it, it was amazing to me. I mean, I I really felt a lot of compassion for them. Meanwhile, David Kaczynski was continuing on his journey of trying to face the horrific consequences of the Unabomber's 18-year rampage. Although David was entirely uninvolved in his brother's brutal acts, circumstances drew him directly into the aftermath. David's warm encounter with Gary Wright is an unlikely byproduct of two people trying to do what they believe is the moral thing under very challenging conditions. It was almost a coincidence or a, a, a lucky thing that um, I got to speak to Gary because um, we'd asked a friend to do some research and find addresses for the victims so that we could write to them and apologize and uh, we didn't have Gary's address at that point and ended up only getting his phone number and I remember sort of thinking well maybe I should give this guy a call and then thinking in the next second no maybe I better not um, you know it could have gone either way I, I just feel very fortunate that it, that it was Gary and um, you know I, I took a big gulp and dialed his phone number and tried to think of what I was going to say. And What did you say? How, how do you open a conversation like that? Well, you know, the phone picked up on the other side and it said, you have reached the right house at the wrong time. <laughs> it was an answering machine. <laughs> and I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> um, but but I, I explained who I was and said that I, I would like to call if you'd be open to that, and I said I'd call back later. And um, so Gary was a little prepared. It didn't strike him completely out of the blue. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. I was sort of braced perhaps for a blast of anger, and instead I got just a real warmth. Um, you know, he said that, um, you know, he uh, understood that my brother was ill. Um, he really thought it took a lot of courage and guts to do what we had done. He appreciated it, um, said I should never blame myself for what my brother has done, and I shouldn't blame myself if the worst happens and, and from our point of view and Ted gets executed. Um, and he said, you know, if you ever want to talk about this, you know, I've been dealing with the trauma of this for a number of years, just give me a call. 
Um, so as this very public process was playing out, I had this kind of resource, this person I could talk to on the other side to kind of say, you're a good guy, Dave, and I feel for you. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me and to Linda and to Mom. What was your first thought upon hearing the voicemail message from Ted Kaczynski's brother? I mean, your first instinct is, well, this is going to be interesting. You know, I mean, it's, that's about the best way I could describe it, you know. Um, not not being judgmental in any way, just, you know, this is going to be interesting. Um, when the call first came through, though, he's Dave's got this uh, real eloquent, soft-spoken manner about him. And I, get, I mean, I could just feel that. It, it, there was no, uh, I, I didn't feel anything other than compassion, really, um, for, for what he was going through as well. And I thought it was really um, admirable and honorable that, that he would call to express, um, you know, his uh, thoughts from his family to me and mine. And uh, I know that doesn't happen all the time. So I, I kind of viewed that as a rare moment. David Kaczynski. You know, here was a guy just about killed and um, then deals for years of uncertainty and worry and wondering if the killer's going to come back. And uh, finally, nine or ten years later, um, he gets a call from the brother of the person who did this. And, uh, you know, he takes the call and is, is, uh, almost takes me under his wing and says, uh, you know, David, this is just beginning for you. I've been dealing with this for nine years. You know, it, it, can, it can get better. So what, what was it like for you to have someone in that very delicate position uh, embrace you so warmly? Yeah. It, you know, I, I remember following my brother's arrest. Um, there was a period of time where, uh, particularly when it, the government was signaling its intention to seek the death penalty, that I was feeling pretty miserable. I remember my wife, Linda, maybe having heard that one time too many, said, you know, David, there are other people in a lot of pain over this. And I remember my first reaction was to say, no, my pain is special. You know, I turned in my brother. It's, it's not only pain and loss, it's guilt. And, and she said, David, you know, there are people who've lost body parts. There are people who've lost their dearest loved ones. Uh, there's a lot more pain here than just your own. remember the day following that conversation, uh, my wife and I are Buddhist, and, and part of our practice involves a morning sitting meditation. Well, the very next day, Linda had set three candles up on the altar in our meditation room, and I didn't have to ask what the candles were for. They represented the three people my brother had killed. And um, I think that was my first sort of awakening to the realization that there was another side to this tragedy and that there was a kind of connection I had with those people on the other side. Gary, how did you get to a place after this horrible thing had been visited upon you to um, being able to open your arms and and extend a, a hand of compassion 
to someone in David's position? Probably the biggest event that happened to me um, was I was driving down the road, and it was a day just kind of not unlike the day in February, um, and I just got this this thought that was so clear because I'd struggled with, what am I going to do with this? I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I may never know who did this to me. Um, and this thought just was so clear to me. It's, it, it, it sounded just like a lot like the voice I'd heard earlier on, and it just said, look, if you believe in Christ and that's what your faith-based system is, and he could look down at those people and say, look, I forgive you for, for what you're doing to me, you don't even have a choice. And it, it was so powerful. I mean, I had to pull over for a minute, and, and I just thought about it, but it was like the whole world had lifted off of me. And, and, and you know, it wasn't until two years after that that then Ted was, was caught and, and I learned about it. But I think that's what prepared me for it. It would be very understandable for somebody who underwent what you experienced to be highly motivated by vengeance, by wanting to uh, have the person who did that to you executed. Why don't you feel that way? Well, I, I you know, I, I try to get to myself this place I call the 50,000-foot level, and that means I can try and do my best to, to understand multiple points of view bef- before I make a decision, if possible. And, you know, many times I, I look at the folks out there who are still angry, and, and I just didn't want to be a part of the anger piece of it. Um, I had too much to lose if I was. I, I, you know, I had my own kids. Um, I, I needed to show them that, you know, you, you can grow beyond these bad things that happen because it's a very long process to execute someone. The anger's there for a very long time, and that healing process, in, in my opinion, doesn't start until you, you can let go. And if, if you're um, going to begin letting go when another person is gone, that could be 13, 14 years down the road. And I, I really didn't feel like I could take from my family the, those years. I, I, I thought, I've got to get on a lot earlier than that and, and get moving down the road and enjoy these years. I mean, there's not that many we have. If, if you do believe in God, well, then turn it over to him. Let him take care of it and, and you know, let it be handled in that manner. And that's, that's kind of the tact I took. And, and for me, it, it's worked, I think, very well. Today, Gary Wright and David Kaczynski travel the lecture circuit to urge abolition of capital punishment, which they regard as cruel and unnecessary. David serves as executive director of New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. I think if we think about what justice consists of, um, it's got to be more than retribution. And I think if there has been one very, very disturbing trend of the past 10 or 15 years, it is the, the equation of justice with retribution, the notion that there is no meaning to the word justice beyond imposing retribution. Um, The harsher, the better, it seems. And you know, that's what we've got to do. We've got to take back the ideal of justice. We've got to take back this principle of human dignity. We've got to take it back from vengeance, from hatred. We've got to say, look, we're all in this together. We are human beings. There's a line between justice and vengeance. How do you distinguish between them? For me, gosh, I I guess it, uh, it comes down to saying, is there a just punishment for what happened to me? 
Sure. Gary Wright. If I was on the other side of the fence and I had lost somebody close to me and, and to the same person, I don't know. I, I, I'd hope I would know how I'd feel, but I honestly believe you don't know till you get there how you're going to feel. Um, but I, I would hope that I could come to some reconciliation within myself to say that still has to be enough, um, that, that they're just put away. Um, and I don't, I don't need any, any more than that. I don't think vengeance has a place in a system of justice. David Kaczynski. I think justice for me is, is that which draws out our humanity and that draws out our essential human dignity. For me, there can't be justice without wisdom. For me, there can't be real wisdom without compassion. I think if you see that it's a human being there, that there is a kind of human presence there, um, you respond to that person in a very different way at a deeper level. Um, you can hold them accountable. You can grieve for their loss. Uh, you may be even impelled to help them, though they've done something terrible. To me, the notion that we're going to beat down people who are probably got in this situation because they were damaged to begin with is contrary to my understanding of justice. Um, for me, justice is sort of born out of the heart. It's a deep human dimension. It's ultimately that which connects us all. And I think to say, well, certain people are disposable or certain people we just need to get rid of. Um, violates that principle of justice, the inclusiveness of, of, of a community of justice and a community of conscience. In the Unabomber case, the U.S. Justice Department sought the death penalty for Ted Kaczynski following his arrest in 1996. The government's decision deeply hurt David Kaczynski, who felt that capital punishment was inappropriate in the case of his mentally ill brother. A court-ordered psychiatric evaluation diagnosed the Unabomber as a paranoid schizophrenic. David also believed that executing Ted would serve to discourage family members in similar cases from coming forward. Then in January 1998, the trial came to a sudden end. Prosecutor Robert Cleary. The Unabomber's career is over. Today, for the very first time, Mr. Kaczynski offered to plead to a sentence of life in prison with absolutely no strings attached. The sentencing hearing itself, you know, was... Very tough. I mean, there was uh, folks speaking, you know, a woman had lost her husband. And, you know, so a lot of emotion, a lot of pain that was expressed. Gary Wright. It was uh, probably one of the most poignant uh, points in my life, really. When I spoke, I really had the chance to say what was on my mind. And I was probably the fourth speaker in line out of six. Ted had been sitting at the table writing notes. And I gave my talk and, and there came a point where I just said, you know, Ted, I don't hate you. I, I forgave you. Because if I hadn't, I'd have been kindling to your cause. And something really amazing happened because the the pencil dropped out of his hand and he looked up and we just locked eyes. And and it was like all of that that, that I had been through and thought about and, and had experienced 
was transferred. And now it just felt very freeing. And it wasn't a hateful thing. It was, it was more like, this is what you own as a person, and, and that's what I'm giving to you. Theodore Kaczynski received four consecutive life sentences and was remanded to a maximum security prison in Colorado. He refuses to respond to letters sent by his family members. Yet always the question lingers, the enigma of what happened inside the mind of Ted Kaczynski, his brother David. I think it's a real tragedy that my brother, with his promise, with some of the sensitivity that I know he had, uh, surrendered to his demons and um, left the world a far worse place, a poorer place for having been there. I think it was the delusions, the confusion, the fear, all of the things that come with uh, his isolation and his mental illness that, that distorted his understanding of his place in the world. I think he felt ultimately very disconnected um, it's really the kind of connections that heal us, that create justice, that create community. And Ted was so isolated, he lost his sense of being connected to others. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Bill Wangren and Alan Mattis. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. The program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part two of our profile of the Unabomber's brother, is Humankind Program number 83. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.